Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 23rd of July, 2023, 9.30 service. Tim Davis speaking on the spirit of wisdom and priorities. Um, it's a bit of a pity Ruth Henson's not here this morning. I haven't got more spare time While I'm already wasting so much I've been eating and sleeping and trash TV watching Gaming and browsing and neighbourhood watching I haven't got more spare time While I'm already wasting so much I should have prayed and researched on this topic for this morning in church the Holy Spirit can really help you focus on what's important I'd have been praying and studying and contemplating thinking of words I want to say for him the spirit of wisdom and priorities would really have helped me out I'd have been praying and studying and contemplating Thinking of words I want to say for him But all I've been able to do is Come up with a song to match Ruth's Yeah, I did actually manage to get a little bit more done <laughs> um, Every now and again you kind of look at the sermon series and you see your name against something. And you see you've got a sermon topic that makes you think, my, that's a bit obscure. <laughs> kind of scraping the barrel a bit on squeezing the most out of this sermon series. Now, we've been looking at the impact of the Holy Spirit on the early church and its, uh, its power and its prayer and its witness and fellowship and courage. What's left to get inspired by? The spirit of wisdom and priorities. Uh, it doesn't exactly have the same dynamic feel as power and prayer and fellowship. Uh, you know, one for the intellectuals, I guess. Um, maybe that's why Stephen gave it to me. Uh, and, you know, to add to this challenge before me of this obscure titled talk, um, I've got a passage seemingly about a disagreement to do with waiting tables. I mean, come on. Um, this is going to be a fun morning for us all, isn't it? Uh, you can see why I might have been procrastinating a little bit when it came to writing this talk, possibly putting a little too, uh, too much effort into my competition with Ruth. But no, actually, this is, surprisingly, a really important topic, um, a really important subject to look at. And it really is, I found what I was doing, such a great learning point from the early church, for our lives today and in the life of the church, this church today. Um, so first of all, let's look at the Bible passage we just had, uh, read to us from Acts 6. Um, what's going on here? Well, we have what I think is the recording of the first you know, proper conflict within the early church. 
There's been troubled times of people being persecuted and people not behaving well, but this is the first time you actually had a proper conflict. It was a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews that their widows were not being equally cared for within the community of the, ch of the early church. And remember, you know, this was a community that was described in Acts chapter 2 as one which shared everything and nobody went without. So this is kind of a big deal if they're saying, well, some people are going without. Uh, who were the Hellenistic Jews? Uh, have you come across that title before? Well, basically, in Jerusalem at that time, there were two types of Jews who made up the Jerusalem church. Some were native Hebrews or Hebraic Jews who had primarily lived in Palestine. They spoke Aramaic, uh, also a bit of Greek, uh, and they used the Hebrew scriptures, the ones that had been passed down from generation to generation. And the others were called Hellenists. Uh, nothing to do with going to hell, no, it's just Hellas, Greek, they were from the Greek area. These were Hellenists who originally lived outside of Palestine, but were now living back in Palestine. You know, many of them had returned to Palestine to live out their final days in their ancestral homeland. And of course, this would have included many widows. If their husbands passed away, they'd come back to uh, Palestine and Jerusalem in particular. These people primarily spoke Greek, as well as the language of the area in which they might have lived. And they had the Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament for their scripture. Same thing, just different language. So the basic difference, primarily, between the Hebrews and the Hellenists appears to have just been mainly linguistic. Um, those who could speak a Semitic language were Hebrews, and those who were not were Hellenists. Um, but within Judaism, you did frequently get disagreements between these two groups of people. Um, and a cultural problem risked carrying over into the new church. Now, the Hebrews strictly observed the law of Moses, whereas, conversely, the Hellenists regarded the Hebrews as quite narrow-minded and self-centered in their faith. They had their own synagogues, separate synagogues in Jerusalem. But when they became Christians at the early church, they came together in one fellowship. And as the church grew, some of the Christians, the early Christians, believed that the church leaders were discriminating against these Hellenist Jews unfairly. And so this conflict arose about the distrib distribution of food to the widows. Care of widows and the needy was a, you know, it was a priority in Judaism. And the Jews provided for their widows weekly in their synagogues along with the poor. So too then would the early church. The problem was that within the early church, you've got these basically these 12 apostles leading it. And they've got the responsibility for doing things like this. And they found that their time was being taken up with such duties when they felt that they should instead be getting out there and preaching the gospel far and wide. You know, Jesus' final instructions to his disciples was to go and do just that. But it was also important to ensure everyone was cared for and no one single group felt unfairly treated within the church. I think it's fair to say that you know, even today, there can often be a tension within church between words and actions. Now, great sermon, but what are you doing practically to show God's love to the community around us? Fantastic, you know, night shelter, food bank and youth group, but why are you not out there preaching and spending more time bringing the gospel to those who need to hear it? Actions, words. And when you've got that kind of tension and conflict and disagreement, it can be easy for church life just to 
grind to a halt, not able to know which activity should take priority, and a need to bring diplomacy to the fore in order to somehow satisfy every person and all demands. And often, sadly, we find it's just simply those who shout the loudest normally get their way. But the 12 apostles took decisive action. They knew they needed to not lose sight of their essential work, but it was important to ensure the unity of the church. So they asked these Hellenistic Jews, their brethren, to choose seven of them, known to be full of the spirit and of wisdom, to take on this position of responsibility. And the result was the continued, rapid growth of the early church. The 12 apostles didn't procrastinate or try and avoid the issue or try and stamp their authority by simply shutting down the Hellenistic Jews. They let the Holy Spirit guide them and equip them with wisdom. And the end result was a new team of mission-focused leaders raised up within the early church. I think the church today still has so much to learn from this. You know, the early church was just starting out. Think of all that's happened in the history of the church since then and how many disagreements there have been and how many there still are. There are frequent disagreements and the need for the gift of, the, of wisdom has never felt greater at times. There are huge issues, aren't there, within the church that we disagree on, like women's ministry, sexuality, safeguarding, healthcare, and then there are the bizarre little things that seem to be allowed to cause all manner of distractions, bizarrely. A friend of mine um, told me once of his interesting experience of worship early on in his training for ordination at a theological college. Uh, the mix of ordinands is fairly evenly balanced between evangelicals, like ourselves at Christchurch, and people from an Anglo-Catholic background, or high church. And a disagreement arose between these students, between some people of each tradition, about what to do, the proper conduct for worship. The use of candles. Some of the Anglo-Catholic students insisted on having candles at morning and evening prayer when they worship. Some of the evangelical students insisted that candles did not need to be a part of their daily worship. Now, I think you want to know how they sought wisdom and let the Holy Spirit guide them in how they should prioritize their worship. Yeah, right. One morning, everyone came down to find all the candles gone and someone had locked them away and not told anyone where they were. Future leaders of the Church of England. <laughs> a disgruntled student, presumably thinking he was doing the right thing, making such an issue out of an utterly unessential issue. The church can't be effective if it's not got its priorities in order and is distracted by the unnecessary. And it can be very obvious when a church is lacking wisdom and ignoring the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That's not to say that smaller issues aren't important, but when they get in the way of the bigger issues, the church isn't effective. One thing we should always be aware of is that the church is shaped continuously by the ever-changing culture and needs around it. Even if petty squabbles can still affect those seeking to be the next generation of church leaders, the history of the church, of which they are looking to serve, 
thankfully does provide countless demonstrations of the same approach as, as the early church to spiritual guidance, wisdom and priorities that the early church did. I think it can sometimes be tempting to think that, you know, when we ask God to guide us in our decision-making and let the Holy Spirit inform our sense of priority, that we're going to somehow be surprised by the response, that something new and revelatory and fantastical we'd never thought of would just be there. That it would not be what we expected, that some pathway forward would just be completely innovative. But often, the Holy Spirit can also just be telling us to stick to the obvious, the straight and the narrow. When people in positions of authority in the church are seen as this, um, they're often thought of as just rigid and controlling or unwilling to change. And yet sometimes in the past, some of the most influential mission leaders have been just that, people who stuck to the straight and narrow and obvious. Um, okay, hands up. Does anyone know who Theodore of Tarsus is? Fantastic, I had no clue either. He was the eighth Archbishop of Canterbury. Why is he important this morning? Well, he was the first person, it seemed, to really bring order to the church in England. We're going back to, I think, about 668 AD, so the seventh century, a long time ago, when he was made the eighth Archbishop of Canterbury. Within three years of being consecrated, he, had, he was calling General Synod to sort out the date of Easter, to clarify managed laws, to establish clergy codes of conduct, and most importantly and significantly, he laid the foundations for the parish system that we know and governs our church today. Straightforward, no messing around, decisive action, knowing that that was the right way. Theodore did all this as a response to the changing culture around him. There was this emerging growth of how people dwelt in regions and townships and villages. These communities reflected the political shaping of how we've come to be governed in our lives in different areas of the country. And so, with the development of the parish system, it enabled the church to minister to those same communities locally, just as we do today within the parish of Christchurch and St. John's. It was easy to think of this um, obscure topic for a sermon as something which you know, wouldn't be that significant. But actually, wisdom, priorities, is crucial in everything that makes a church a place where God's kingdom can successfully grow. We desperately need to seek God's will in all we do as a church and spend time praying to God Asking that his Holy Spirit will give us the wisdom we need. Because sometimes it does lead to dramatic changes in our thinking and practices. William Wilberforce, uh, the great figure of the abolition of slavery, he was part of this renowned group of Christians called the Clapham sect. Now, back in the 18th century, Clapham was well, a smallish hamlet three miles away from central London. And there was this concentration of Christians who were determined, devoted to seeking God's will and seeing social transformation and new ways of expressing church life. One of its members, a guy called Henry Thornton, was said to have put aside three hours every day in the midst of busy public life for his own private prayer. 
wanting to know God's will. How many of us, on a daily basis, try to set aside even a fraction of that each time, each day, to spend time listening to what God would say to us? As a church, we can always seek to do this better. Now, we need to consult together as church and with God. Uh, those of you who've been on PCC or are on PCC um, will know the you know, familiar <laughs> like scenario it feels at PCC meetings throughout the country. Um, we open and close with prayer, but it can often feel like we're just merely you know, respectively doffing our cap to God in recognition that he might at least be somewhere in the vicinity of our meeting. Now, we go through our agenda and debate and discussion and, and decision-making, and what we've discussed is then offered to God at the end. We're suddenly brought back into the process and given a couple of minutes to catch up on our discussions and plans. Now, of course, that's a rather kind of cynical parody of the description of PCC meetings. But actually, some of you may be thinking, maybe it does feel a bit like that. How much time do we spend in our church life just praying and waiting on God collectively? We can get so, it's so easy to get caught up in discussing what our priorities be without actively seeking to know what God's will is for us, both individually and collectively, in the different issues that confront us. And I think it's the seeking of God's will for our lives individually that can feel the most uncomfortable. What will God say to me? Looking back at that passage from Acts 6, uh, you see a couple of noteworthy names, Philip and Stephen. Philip, we hear about later on with his amazing um, encounter with the, Egypt, with the Ethiopian um, treasurer, the person who is a treasurer to the queen and becomes a Christian. And Stephen, we know, was the person who was stoned to death by Saul. But Stephen, before that, he's one of these seven appointed for this ministry. And he's described as a man full of God's grace and power, who performed great wonders and signs among the people. When he spoke, he was full of wisdom, and no one could argue against him. Surely a man like Stephen was better off joining the Twelve Apostles, going out there preaching the word charismatically and enthusiastically to people, rather than you know, just waiting on tables. But Stephen was the right person for that responsibility at that moment in time. Now, this distributing of food to the widows would probably have had a much greater pastoral role than merely waiting on tables, doling out plates of food once a day. You know, when we host our monthly grapevine lunch, the role of the person sitting with the guests offering fellowship is equally as important as the person cooking the delicious food that they get to eat. And Stephen was a man who excelled in this type of ministry. Moreover, Stephen was willing to do this service. He saw that there was a priority that needed to be fulfilled, and he was willing to do it. And this is something we can all individually learn from as well. Now, it wasn't that serving tables was on a lower level than prayer and teaching, the point is rather that the task to which the twelve had been specifically called was one of witness and evangelism. Both the twelve and the newly appointed seven's ministries 
were forms of public religious service. In our lives, in our place in church, society, what do we think we can do to help serve? What do you know is a role that really needs doing at church? It can be easy to think of some roles as more glamorous or more holy than others. And it would have been very simple for the seven to compare their ministry with the twelves as well. Yet they didn't. They saw the equal importance of the roles that we're all called to do. Several years ago, um, when I was a leader of our 14 to 14 to 18 year old youth group, we were on our annual weekend away at a Christian uh, holiday and activity centre in Kent called Carity Wood. Uh, we got to the Saturday afternoon and I realised that the leaders who were due to lead our evening meeting um, and therefore had the responsibility of setting up the room and getting all the audiovisual equipment ready um, hadn't done anything and had disappeared off to play unihop with some of the other youth. Um, now, I'd been leading in the morning. I was going to be leading again the next morning. And I really wanted, all I really wanted to do with my free time that afternoon was go and play a bit of unihop with the young people as well. But I could see that nothing was going to get done. So I spent the next hour tidying stuff away, setting up the room for the meeting, putting the songs in order on the laptop and PowerPoint, typing out words for songs we didn't yet have in the laptop, even getting the music ready for the musicians. And by the time we started the meeting, I was feeling utterly frustrated and worked up thinking about how I'd been left to do so many other people's jobs for them. I was in no mood to worship God. And then a voice from seemingly out of nowhere spoke to me, saying, why are you so angry? You are the right person to be doing this right now. You're not doing this for yourself. You're doing this for me. And of course, God was right. I should have felt privileged to be the right person, in the right place, at the right time for God, even if no one else saw or knew what I'd done. Will you actively set aside time to seek God, praying to him, listening to him, asking him to give you wisdom by his Holy Spirit so that you will be focused on his will, knowing what he would have you prioritise rather than ignore or try to avoid by procrastinating. Do you have a heart for serving and could do something else to serve God than perhaps just that one thing you think is what you would do? But also, let's as a church spend some time now in prayer, just collectively praying that we would allow God's spirit of wisdom and priorities to shape our worship and our mission so that we might be effective witnesses for the kingdom of God. Let's pray.